This episode of the Internal Comms Podcast is brought to you by Acid Test, AB's unique and powerful tool for aligning organisations around a common cause. Now, we all know communication does not equal understanding. If it did, well, our jobs would be a lot easier. The acid test of internal communication is whether there is shared understanding. Is the goal clear? Are we all pulling in the same direction? Do we share the same priorities, the same purpose? Acid test is a powerful tool that reveals knowledge gaps inside organisations. Its unique and proven methodology gives you the insight and information you need to drive performance by creating deeper understanding and alignment. Now, listeners, you know how fond I am of asking open, probing questions that hopefully reveal fresh and genuine insight. Acid test is not a tick box survey. Instead, the method is a message. Simply taking part in acid test makes employees feel heard, understood and valued. Visit abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test to find out more. Download a PDF to discuss with your team and arrange an informal call to discuss acid test with me and my AB colleagues. So that address again for you, abcom, abcom.co.uk forward slash acid test. Now is the time to take a privileged peek inside the mind of your organisation by asking the questions that matter. Acid test, a communications audit without the autocomplete. Welcome to the Internal Comms Podcast with me, Katie McCauley. Listeners, I've been sitting on a story for some time, which to be honest, I've hesitated to bring you because I feared it might come across as a little bit promotional. This podcast has never been and it will never be about selling you things. If you like an idea, a book or even a person after hearing about them on this show and you decide you want them in your working life, then that's great. But that's a byproduct of what we're here to do, which is all about exploration and inspiration. But that said, I can't ignore the fact that the agency I run and now own has a long and unique heritage and in many ways is a reflection of the evolution of our profession. So I asked AB's founding father, Anthony Buckley, where the agency gets his name, Anthony, better known as Tony, who is now 86, what prompted him to set up one of the world's first IC agencies back in 1964? And I also asked Tony's son, Tim Buckley, who ran the agency after him, to reflect on the maturing of the IC profession from writers and editors to advisors and consultants. Listeners, I genuinely didn't know where this conversation would lead or even if I'd end up sharing it with you. 
But as you'll hear, this turned into a deeper philosophical debate about values-based leadership, the power of integrity and honesty, the difference between mirrors and windows, the need to keep asking why, and ultimately the future of business and its role in society. As you'll hear, I'm ever the optimist, while Tim strikes a far more cautionary note. A couple of footnotes. The CEO we mentioned, Matt Barrett, ran Barclays Bank between 1999 and 2004. During his first few months on the job, Matt spoke in person to more than 14,000 employees across Europe. And we also mention Ronnie Scott's. For those of you who don't know, it is an iconic jazz club in Soho, in the heart of London's West End, where some of the greatest names in music have performed from Ella Fitzgerald to Miles Davis. So, without further ado, I bring you the Tim and Tony Show. So, Tony and Tim, it is an absolute pleasure to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. Tony, I'd like to set the scene with you, if I may, and take you back to the 1960s, to quite a pivotal year, so setting the scene for people, I believe at this point your your wife is pregnant, about to have the boy that turns into Tim that's sitting beside you. You know, um, I was already Tim. <laughs> I didn't turn into him. No, that's true. That's true. Oh gosh, we're getting semantic really early on. Oh, this, this, I knew this was going to be trouble. Tony, what was happening then? What? How did the whole concept of AB develop? The concept started really because having worked for two years for the Financial Times in their printing division, I realized that there was no professional print buying uh, of any consequence. And so I decided to leave the uh, Financial Times and set up AB Consultants. And that was in 1964. And I worked on the basis that the companies, the large solicitors and uh, accountants, take 50% of the money that we saved them and that we didn't need to be paid other than what we could save them. And that worked very well. And in doing that, I happened to come across a man called John Goldsmith. He had a company called Magazine Consultants, and he was producing the first magazine for the Consumer Council, and it was to be produced letterpress. I said to him, I think I can produce it cheaper for you. And he said, ah, but the quality won't be the same. So I said, well, give me some pictures and I will get them uh, reproduced and you can tell me if you think they're good. And I did that and he took them to his client. He said, that's amazing. I said, how much is the magazine going to cost to print? And he said, it's going to cost 12,000 pounds for 20,000 copies. And I said, really? I said, well, I can produce that for you for 8,000 pounds. So I will take 2,000 pounds, and you can have 2,000 pounds, and your client can still pay the same amount of money. We then moved from our home in Chiswick, where we, I set up the company, to High Hoban, and we joined up with another company of journalists who had got an intro into the uh, Metropolitan Police. I printed GKW, the, uh, the editorial company, and John Goldsmith, the magazine designer, we produced the first issue of The Job, 
newspaper for the Metropolitan Police. I think that was about the first outside production of a company communication with their staff. And that developed. And one Christmas, I happened to be very ill. And so I had three months off. And when I returned to the offices in High Hoban, I found out that the other two companies had acquired all my business. And so I left them on a Friday. I picked up the telephone and spoke to a very good friend of mine, George Metcalf, and said, George, have you got a desk and a telephone that I can have? And he said, of course, Tony, come into the office on Monday. And that's how I went to Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club <laughs> because he had offices above Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club. And I set up the business again. And within 12 months, all my clients were back with me. And two of the journalists who were working in High Hoban with us came and joined me. All the magazines we were doing, we had to use the trade press and typesetters for doing all the setting because we were designing it and we were writing it but we couldn't get the setting done, but we could get the printing done. So I thought, why don't we start our own typesetting unit as well? So I think that AB were the first people to take on board their own typesetting and makeup. And that's where the business started to grow to such an extent that after I think about three years, I needed to find another office and I found two arches under Waterloo East Station. One of them was very convenient because it meant we could all park our cars, and the other we converted into really rather nice offices. And instead of paying £12 a square foot in Soho Square, I was paying £2 a square foot. That's where the business grew, and eventually you, Katie, joined us, and Timbers joined us. Do you see yourself, or did you see yourself at the beginning, in internal communication, at what point did you realise this is a discipline called internal comms? Because it sounds very much as if you entered it, as you said, through the print buying, the print management, and it was very much that kind of fulfilment of magazines. Was there a point at which you realised, hang on a minute here, this is really about trying to capture the interest of employees? What point did that happen? That happened because I, I was going into these companies and meeting the editors, and the editors had a really rather limited brief because everything that they did was approved of or not approved of by management. And I said, what there really needs to be is some sort of independent editorial approach that the staff of the companies would realize that we were not in the pay Particularly, I know we had our fees paid by the company, but we were able to stand back. Our journalists were able to offer a proper view of what, is, uh, what the problems and, and the good things were happening inside the company. And uh, the enlightened companies realized that it was good for them because they then got a much broader uh, aspect of what was happening in the company. And I think that... Uh, because I had employed these two journalists, 
I realized that this was the way to approach companies and say, we can take on your communications for you. You, of course, pay the bill, but what we will give you is an objective view. We will get the approval of the staff and they will begin to uh, accept us as independent people and not what the company wants to hear. Providing that objective, constructive kind of challenge. Absolutely. So it wasn't just a series of press releases and good news stories. That's right. That's right. Absolutely. What was it like, Tim, coming into that environment as the boss's son? When did you join AB? Well, I joined AB uh, in the early 90s. It was interesting because when I'd left school, uh, Dan and I had had a chat and he said, I would employ you. He said, but you have to go and do something I can employ. I'm not going to just take you out of school. Nobody will trust you. Nobody, you won't, you won't benefit and it won't do you any good. So go and do something I can employ. So I went and did journalism and studied it and then went into magazines and newspapers for almost 10 years before I got to the point where I thought, okay, it's time to join. I, joined, I got onto the nationals and I loved it. But there were things going on that I wasn't, it didn't sit comfortably with the way I feel about the world. And uh, so on the sun, on the Friday that I left the newspapers, because I was, because when I resigned from, uh, I was at the sun at the time, when I resigned from the sun, uh, which for those who aren't in the UK is, is a typical tabloid red top, um, used to be an amazing paper, not so much anymore. <laughs> get Since you left. Since I left. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, it went downhill when I left. Um, but when I, when I, I on the because when I resigned, normally they moved you on immediately because you were normally going to a competitor. Yes. But because I wasn't going to a competitor, I had to work my three months' notice, which was terminable. Anyway, so on the Friday, I left as a as a staff man on the biggest selling newspaper in the UK. On a Monday, on the Monday, I started as a junior reporter on BP Leisure News. <laughs> it was basically that I'd phoned and had an interview. To say it was an interview is a little bit disingenuous to the interview process because it was unlikely that I wasn't going to get the job. I accept that. But I, well, it was very clear and I was very accepting of the fact that I couldn't start in anything other than a junior role. So, yes, it was tough. Some people couldn't accept that I was the boss's son. I had a, one really difficult conversation with one editor who said he had to leave because he couldn't work with me because of who I was. I understood it. I asked him not to, but he, he really didn't like it. And that was just the way it was. I I couldn't help who I was. But I did work my way up and I worked in every area. So I tried to prove to myself and to those around me that I was up for the job, not just riding in on the fact that I was Tony's boy. Um, I, I think I did okay. It's hard to tell really, isn't it? You know, you, you I can only see the world from my eyes. I try to understand it from other people's perceptions. But ultimately the frame of reference is my own. Most people stayed and most people thrived and I went on to help build the business and develop it and and, and that was part of my history. So I think I did okay, but it's not really for me to say on that one. <laughs> Fair point. Can I take you back to the culture in those days? These were journalists, mainly from, as you say, newspapers. What was the culture like back then? What was the, what was the environment like inside the office? There were two elements to it. One was on the professional side, because everybody was a solid, grounded journalist who knew how to craft a message and knew how to ask questions uh, that would potentially challenge management, there was a real pride in the independence, as Dad was saying, that that, that independent view of, of, of the company. And while 
it was always a fine balance between hitting the propaganda side of internal comms that people who work in organisations see um, and the hard-hitting side which said, actually, we have challenged on this and we're getting more than just a management-speak piece of spin. I think because we were the, the journalists were there, you were able to, to, to carve a useful path between those two areas. Certainly internally, though, the emotion was much more of a family business. It is a family business. It was a family business. And people felt nurtured and people felt supported because it wasn't always easy. Sometimes you were facing clients who didn't like the fact you were pushing back. And sometimes clients left because you were pushing back. Mm -hmm. But there was never a management position because that was never like that that said, you lost us the client. It was, okay, they didn't like our approach. That's tough. They aren't, you know, they aren't ready for that level of upfront communication and that level of challenge. Those who stuck with us, and there were lots of clients who stuck with us for a very long time, and many, many who stuck with us for years and years, really did appreciate the level of honesty and integrity. And that was, for me, very powerful. And when I eventually took on and inherited the CEO role at the organisation, it was something that I was very keen to nurture and develop as well because those those long existing relationships were always the hardest to maintain but always the most, most rewarding, both internally for the quality of the work but also in the way you were able to enjoy the company's progress your, your client's progress, where a client was doing well, or even when they're having tough times, enjoying the fact that at times, okay, you were having to slim down on the amount of work you were doing because financially they were struggling, but they stuck with you because they knew you were sticking with them. Yes. And it was a partnership. And partnership was always a very important part of that. And I think that came from the fact that people knew we were honest and, it, and had integrity, and also that we weren't afraid to say, hang on, why are you doing that? You know, we may not be able to publish what we thought completely, but we did always say, hang on, if you do that, all you're going to do is piss off your staff. Yeah. And if you're going to piss off your staff, what's the point? There's, there's, there's no point in just doing it. If you can't answer why, if you can't answer that basic question, you're not going to get buy-in. And if you don't get buy-in, this program is not going to last long. Yes. Didn't mean to say they always listened, but no, you, but you can you, but try. Exactly. Tony, I'd like to talk to you about the values that you had and that imbued the business because they're still alive at AB now. And I'm just wondering, did that just completely come naturally to you or did you work hard to think this is how I want to run the company? This is the culture I want. This is the, these are the values I want to instill. How did you approach that challenge? That's difficult to answer. I just think that it was me doing what I felt was the right thing to do. I don't think I thought this has got to be the right way to do it. Therefore, this is the way I'm going to do it. I think that it was a perfectly natural way of developing the business, of being straightforward and honest with one's clients, that they respected and trusted what one was going to do. And the only way you could find out whether that was right or not was in the results that you achieved. And, uh, I think we achieved many good results. And of course, we had our failures. When we moved to Waterloo, we had another new situation on our hands because I had a union involved. Yes. 
And we had a, a typesetting union at the back of the offices and a journalist's union up at the front of the office. Because the whole printing and publishing pattern developed, it was quite clear that the typesetting side was no longer going to be needed because all your journalists were, take, were keyboarding this copy and also turning it into layout and also producing your pages for you. And I think that one of the hardest things I had to do was to actually close down our typesetting business. And it took three, four months of negotiation. And, and I wasn't a well-liked person by the typesetting department. But what I have to say that the father of Chapel um, was a young man and he said, Tony, you've got to do it. I absolutely understand. But the two senior men who had come in gave me a terrible, terrible time and brought the unions in and we had all sorts of conversations going on. But eventually it all resolved itself but it took time. But that was the hardest thing I think I've had to do in the business. Really? In, in, developing, in, in, in developing the business, making that change. Desktop publishing yeah. revolutionised. Totally. And it's, it, it's rare to be at that moment actually seeing a whole profession die away and not yeah. longer be needed anymore. Absolutely. Very, very tough. But I was going to ask you both, really, I mean, AB is such a, a story of survival. I mean, I think Morgan Stanley says something like 48% of small businesses, you know, don't last beyond the first five years. And here we are, 56 years, something yes. like that afterwards. I think that's right. I have to be Same careful. Same age as me. I was going to say, Tim, I give away your age every time I say no, that. No, no, that's all right. <laughs> Do you have any observations on why it's managed to last so long? Because I think lots of people listening may one day dream to set up their own business, probably maybe even are running their business, maybe they're two or three, five years in. What's the lesson that you can impart to them about survival and adapting to change, I guess? I think there's several elements to it in terms of longevity. I think flexibility is the key because unless you are able to adapt, you are going to you're going to stagnate when th when change does come. And th that flexibility can be almost anything. It can be such as when COVID comes along and suddenly everybody has to work from home. It can be when the union, when, you know, when, when part of the business stops being viable because uh, technology has developed to such a stage. It can be, I mean, the toughest thing I faced was when we lost a third of the business in three days and through no fault of our own. Three of our biggest clients pulled the plug. One uh, it was a publication that was in 16 languages, went on entirely, entirely onto their internet. One, uh, the client had changed the, the, the person who'd come in from out outside brought their own agency in and another one stopped doing their publication completely so you know they lost their franchise it was a rail company they lost the franchise there was no publication so that was three and so we had to make a quarter of the business redundant in the run up to christmas it's really tough i think the reason that when dad did the negotiations with the unions and when i had to go through the redundancy process at those times people knew it we didn't do it lightly we took our own cuts we it was obvious that we were taking cuts you you have to live by the same rules that you set by everybody else if you sit there and say you do as i say but not as i do you're going to come unstuck everybody recognized the ultimately recognized the challenge 
you, we were completely open. There wasn't a moment where I think anybody thought that I was taking it lightly. And it wasn't that I was pretending to take it seriously. It was very serious. I, they, these were people I had known. I, you know, I grew up with the business. Some of the people who I had to let go, I had known since I was basically a boy. And here was I having to say to them, I'm really sorry, we don't have a role anymore. But they were all part of the conversation that led to those decisions. And, and it's when you face those challenges as an organisation that you know whether you're going to succeed. One of the problems when ambition and self-belief can be really big conflictors. And sometimes I think companies fail because ambition and self-belief outstrip ability. And I don't mean that unkindly because I think you need, entrepreneurs need to have a, de a degree of drive. I'm not an entrepreneur. My dad is an entrepreneur. He started the business. He flew by the seat of his pants. I went when I joined and I recognised that I needed to learn about business. I went and did a course because I also knew I couldn't afford to make the mistakes that he had made in the early days. So I had to be professional about it. But I couldn't lose the heartbeat of what I believed the business was about. Um, I don't know if you still do, but I know that when we were recruiting, we would have a whole sorts of questions. But the last thing, there was a little box called a Venus, And a Venus <laughs> was that little piece on any interview of this person who's sitting in front of me, do they have a little spark, something that's a bit different? They didn't even, often we'd recruit people who didn't really have all the skill set. <laughs> Um, but they had a little something that said, A, I'm going to learn, and B, I'm going to be committed enough that I'm going to really enjoy the fact that this organisation has given me a chance. And nine times out of ten, those recruitments work better than people who just fitted everything else. So A, Benus, what is A, Benus? A, Benus is that. It's that bit that says, yeah, I'll do that. I'll roll up my sleeves. Yeah, I, it, I, it's, okay, so I'm not looking at my job description to see whether or not I should do it. I will just do that and I'll make that happen. And do you know something? I recruit today on ABNUS. I, I mean, <laughs> I, it's not called ABNUS anymore. It's now Copsness, but it's basically I, I, I've recruited three people into roles at the charity I now run, and all of them have got um, skill sets that I know are much more important, such as a willingness to be adaptable, a willingness to roll up your sleeves and learn, and a willingness to support others than ever they had in terms of the actual uh, details of the role that they could do. Um, they had some basic skills, but they have learned so much more by developing in that role. And I think that's part of the success. I, I think that people who are singularly driven to understand why success is built on individualism collectively are better than people who believe that just the individual view is the right one. Right. I think you, you, yeah, everybody in a team thinks differently. The individuals are all different, but collectively you can deliver so much more. And you have to respect and understand that across each other. I think where people fail is where they just believe that they are right and nobody else is right. Because you're never going to succeed if you, if you don't listen to somebody else who says, actually, that's not going to work. You know, yeah. I, I fall and fail of it. Sometimes if I, you know, I, I believe I've got the answers. And you drive something through and you just think, actually, no, I should have listened. Just should have listened. If you can bring people with you, and that doesn't just mean the leader, that the team needs to bring each other with them. Yes. And say, actually, I don't like what they're doing there but I can see why I'll go or I really support it and I'll go. The, the time it fails, and it happens so often in internal communications, the, t the, the, the senior team who are, who are looking at a, pro a problem, they said, this is the way we're going to go. 
but they don't explain to the front line how that is going to benefit. Often that's because they know it's not going to benefit everybody. Yes. And that's a difficult thing to deal with. And in big organisations, it's really tricky. I don't, you know, that, that will never get any easier. But I think those that succeed are where they really do, where the person you're following talks to you in a language you understand mm. um, and mm. talks to you about the way that that would make them feel and mm. you recognise it. Yes. Great leaders don't shy away from tough calls and tough decisions, but more importantly, they don't shy away from explaining why they're having to make the decision. Yes, yes. Poor leaders just say, I'm having to make a tough decision, live with it. Yeah. A poor leader doesn't engage you with your heart. They just say, this is, it's tough, we're going to have to just live through it. Or you're going to have to accept the fact that it's tough, tough. A great leader, and I remember when we took Matt Barrett out on the road, his partners, <laughs> I mean, you were working with him at the time. Yes. But part of the, that was a man who, because he had experienced life as a teller, yes. when he stood or sat with his sweets on the, sta- on the stage in front of an auditorium of people and said, what's your question? And a teller said, why is this not working because this, this is... It wasn't that he said, well, it's just because of the way it is. He said, hang on. And he would call on his director who said, I'll have a look at it. But equally he would say, that must be really frustrating. And you knew... You knew he understood what frustration meant. And this was the man who was running the biggest bank in the UK. Yep. <laughs> and that's leadership. It's not about, it's not about uh, ivory towers and glass houses. It is about understanding and recognising. And I think that's the key. I think businesses succeed and fail on great leadership and engagement. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because we often talk still about internal comms people being the conscience of their organisations, you know, they're the, they're the department that puts their hands up to say that doesn't make any sense, or nobody's going to believe you, or that's actually not true. So where you can spin a marketing message, you can't necessarily ever spin an internal comms message because you're communicating to people that see behind the curtain. You know, they see under the hood, they see what's really going on. So it's interesting how it doesn't sound like that ever changed. That was there from the very beginning, and I don't think it will ever change. And I think that's the difference. I mean, I remember when. When you, when you and I were developing the acid test audit, one of the things was interesting was we were often giving advice on how to do it, but we weren't always being paid to, for that advice because we could see the challenge. And I think that the, 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 the difference between marketing and internal comms is that bit that people, people are invested in the business in a different way when they work inside the organisation. And marketing, you are able to, 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 to drape the image that you want to be seen over it. I know it's less it's possibly a little bit more muddied in these days because of uh, of the of the channels available to individuals but i think that that internal um friction between the level of honesty and integrity and the drive for the bottom line profit is and 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 the 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 pressures on the executive for the dividend or the share price and the external pressures are such that that honesty and integrity piece is always going to be a challenge for for internal comms. And that's ultimately why I left AB. Ultimately, the, 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 the pendulum, I think, swung in favour of that integrity and honesty for a large chunk of the 90s. But then it started to swing back. And I think there became much more pressure on 
on pure financial growth. It came with the boom of the, of the world. Yes. You know, as as success and as as large financial gains uh, grew across uh, across businesses, so the demand for more profitable and more cash increased and therefore the drivers at the executive suite was became even more acute in that they had to deliver year on year improved profits and a, and a piece that said we are going to not give you that much money this year because we want to sustain build we, we need to backfill some of this that we've been developing or whatever it might be didn't fly and investors just went elsewhere they said okay and so share price dropped and therefore dividends dropped and therefore it becomes a vicious circle and it, it, it's a tough one because i don't think i think until longevity and forecasting for not just two years not just mm. six months until that stops being the the norm we're going to be in trouble mm. um, and it's not helped in in today with uh, the current global leadership and i'm talking about governments at the moment where you just just saying it doesn't make it true <laughs> and unfortunately, that is the that is the end result of what has happened. I think there is a a real tension between the the, the really powerful role of internal communications and that ability to hold the mirror up to the executive yes. suite and say, "Guys, look at yourselves. If you think you're looking at the guys who are delivering for you, you're delusional. I have to hold up a window for you to get the truth. A mirror." isn't going to give it to you. If you hold up a mirror and they say, that looks brilliant, <laughs> you've, they're failing. And I, I couldn't do it because they wanted, a, they wanted mirrors, they didn't want windows. Because internal communications, I always saw it as bridge building. There is no doubt about it at the executive suite, particularly in a big organisation, the pressures for them are very different to the pressures to the guys, the, the, women, the men and women who are making stuff. But unless you've built bridges between the two, unless the guys at the executive suite get the pressures and the understanding at the front line. And unless the front line understand and get the pressures of the executive suite, you're never going to be have dialogue. And that needs to be both about vocabulary, it needs to be about integrity, it needs to be about the prosaic stuff of fact, it needs to be about whether the driver of pure profit is correct, or whether actually the need for employee satisfaction and engagement I, I i've always struggled with the word of engagement not because i don't think it's important but i think measuring it is almost impossible Agreed. but i think i think the i think that that piece that says that abness if you if you could have every organization had that abness box whether it's you know whether it's btness or whether it's british gasness it doesn't really matter it's the bit that says actually i understand why i'm doing this you know, the apothecal question of you know the the, the the gardener at NASA is what are you doing? Are you you expect him to say I'm mowing the lawn? So no, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. It 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 is it is it is as trite and as simple as that. But until you've built bridges, the person mowing the lawn is never going to understand why a neat lawn is going to help put a man on the moon. Mm. I think I think we're helped a little bit, and we have been since. I think Simon Sinek wrote Start With Why in 2009. So we're not quite a decade old yet on that one. But the whole search for purpose inside organisations, why do we really exist beyond making money? I think we're slightly helped with that now. The organisations are reflecting on what, what the role they want in society really is. And I think in the pandemic as well, we saw organisations doing really well who suddenly realised our task is here to serve and not sell. You know, they switched and they were trying to serve society 
and those are the ones. And well, Tim's, fingers Tim's crossed. crossing his fingers. Tim, tell I us really about do. it. Well, no, I, I, I loved. I, I really hope that's true. And I think the indications are certainly what I read suggests that people who thought the bottom line was everything are beginning to understand that actually, unless you've got longevity, the bottom line is irrelevant. And longevity only comes when you when you do serve and provide service or you provide real value. And I don't just mean money in your pocket value. You know, you've got the, you've got the, the big oil companies are seriously, it appears, looking at renewable energy. They are understanding that there is a finite amount of of oil in in the ground and when that runs out that if you want to still be there there has to be something else i've i've got my fingers crossed because we still i think as a society measure success by how much money you've got and i think that's the bit that worries me most we are still driven primarily by measuring success by pounds in the pocket and i don't believe that society changes until the pounds in the pocket are only part of the equation of success. That's my fear. And I, don't, I haven't got the answer, but the reason I went from working in businesses to working in charities is I saw more of the answer. I don't get measured at all by how much dividend I pay. I get measured by how much I raise to do the stuff I do, but it's much more about making sure I've delivered stuff to our beneficiaries than ever it is about the amount of money. And just if, if if I have a reduction in the amount of money, if I can find out how ways of delivering as much to those my beneficiaries, then I've succeeded. It's different this year. I haven't been able to do half of what I would want to do. We've had to adapt. I think that's the piece for me. Until businesses stop measuring success purely by the bottom, the line. bottom line. I remember there's a piece um, Noam Chomsky did, an amazing set of um, lectures it was put together as uh, requiem for the american dream well worth watching but in the 1950s in this this is the he's talking about the states every child had free education every child had free further education and all chief executives earned about five times the maximum the, about maximum about five times some of them really big 10 times how much their front line weren't Today, the multiples are just ludicrous. I mean, I think, though, to a degree, because of the next massive crisis that's already here, which is obviously the climate crisis, um, I think it's too obviously too early to talk about the death of consumerism. That would be daft. And also people are talking about, you know, the crisis of capitalism. But everything you're talking about leads me to think that there are other drivers as well that would encourage people to think beyond the things that they have. To think that happiness potentially is in more than just acquiring more stuff. Is it Woody Allen that says money is only useful for financial reasons? I mean, you know, there are other things. I'm also conscious there are going to be a lot of people listening to this who are a lot younger than us that at the moment do not know how they're ever going to own their own house. What's your reflection on us as a generation, you know, and those guys in their, in their 20s, their early 30s? Is it, is it tougher? Is it harder? I have been a very lucky generation, I and mean, I've got two children who neither of them own their own places. They both rent. They aren't quite as old as I was when I bought my first house, but I'm not sure if either of them are in a place to buy their own place yet. And I think it's, I think it's difficult, and I think that is part of that vicious circle of the, the, the people who have getting more mm-hmm. and the people who haven't scrabbling, having to scrabble that much harder to get what's enough. 
But I do think that there is this need for internal or, or in organizations internally, and that means internal comms facilitating this, to hold up examples of honest, integrity-driven decisions and shine a light on poor decision-making. Yes. And shine a light on... Is that not a journalist's responsibility? But, oh. Well, in the old days. Oh, no. You see, wherever <laughs> we turn, we're faith. I desperately want to convince you that you don't have to be as cynical. You don't have to have that cynical shadow over your shoulder because I think we're in a position now that all the things you're talking about have come to fruition. So, for example, Edelman, biggest PR firm in the world, Edelman Trust Barometer, every year, 33,000 people they interview about trust. And they ask, you know, who do you trust? And all these institutions, and we know trust is declining, but equally we know how important trust is because of that survey and how we need to become more trustworthy. And all, across all of our institutions need to become more trustworthy. So I but, kind but of But you have to, to earn trust. Trust, trust, doesn't, trust isn't something you can create. No. Trust is something you have to earn because you only get trust by being transparent by being open. So a good leader gets trust by saying, we got some problems here. And not we've got some problems in a PR way. We've got real problems. And the problems start at this level. Yes. And at the executive level. And then at the senior management level. And then at the operational management level. I know it's been slightly um, sidelined, the work that uh, TJ Larkin did in terms of, you know, the gaps of communication in the middle of an organisation. Everybody that's from a certain point upwards is pointing up because their job depends on pleasing the person above them and the front line, uh, the, 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 the management at the front line, their job depends entirely on the front line delivering. And so in, unless you can connect the, the, the sort of front line management with the middle management, you're going to come unstuck. And actually, I, I still believe there's a huge amount of truth in that. But I think that for me, there's that piece that says, unless you trust why things are happening, ultimately, I meet a lot of cynical people in both in the charity world. I mean, the charities, the, charities fill a huge role in society, mm. but they shouldn't have to exist. No. All right. The fact that food banks are now part of the government's armory is, for me, criminal. Food banks should have been a temporary food stop while a government swept in to make them unnecessary. But no, we as people step in to try and help where we can because we can't bear to see the suffering. I mean, one of the things you both have done throughout your time at AB was you spent quite a lot of your time supporting the industry bodies. I know, Tim, you were involved in the IOIC, Institute of Internal Communications, and then the International Association of Business Communicators, who, by the way, mentioned you on a call recently because someone said, where's Tim and his guitar? So, um, and I know we have quite a few IABC listeners. What was your thinking behind supporting your industry bodies? What was the driver for that for you? Oh, but very easy for me. The IABC was a very important thing for me because it took me to America. It took me to, a, took me to Norway, took me to Sweden, took me to France, took me to Germany. And I loved to travel and I could travel and do IABC at the same time. And I met wonderful people, South, America, South Africa. I took a position at IABC as chairman for Europe. And uh, I have a clock sitting around the corner there, which they gave me when, I, when, they gave, 
when I stopped. And uh, it was, it, yes, it was all part of communication. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't just communication here. It was communication everywhere because yeah. you, could, you could learn and find out how other people were doing things. You could exchange ideas, and that was very important. Not to be inward-looking, but be outward-looking, to see how other people do it. You can always learn. Yes, absolutely. And IBC is still going very strong and doing that, Tim. Yeah. I know you were involved as yeah, well. I mean, I, for me, I think both um, IABC and IOIC, I was, I was more involved with the Institute than I was with, um, with the IABC, although I was very active with IABC. I think it's, uh, there are a number of elements. One, I think, is definitely that sharing. To the furtherance of internal communications as a profession, the, I think the progression was continuing from when Dad started AB. It was purely about getting the staff magazine out. It became much more about understanding how helping understanding within an organisation could drive that engagement piece, could drive the ability connection. And I, that is still definitely the, the key driver to internal communications. My personal involvement with the IOIC was very much along a number of number of strands. One, it was wonderful to have the theoretical debate outside of the business environment. It is lovely to have that. You have to have the theory debate. You have to sit down and talk about why trust is important. Even though when you go back into your organisation, you may know that the executive team are lying through their teeth. All right, you just have to deal, and and some of it there's the, there's the, there's the pragmatic element, and I'm maybe being unkind to lots of executive teams who I'm sure are working very hard to do exactly the right thing by both their employees and their customers. However, in the debate, you have to recognise that it doesn't always come across that way, and you do have to, and unless you've got the theory behind internal communications, unless you you have that debate with different viewpoints, because different organisations, we all face the different difficult problems. Every individual in an organization has their own agenda right some people it's just i turn up to work i do my job i go home and i don't give it about anything else others i want to make this better and i'll never forget the time we went and did the, the internal our audit at oxo Absolutely. all right and we were going around so this is they made it was, it was campbell's we were doing the audit for and they were making oxo cubes and we met this woman who had run the same piece of oxo cube making kit since it was, when she first worked on it, she told us it had run on steam. And she'd watched this, exactly the same piece of kit had been adapted to electricity. And she didn't just talk to us about the machine. She invited both Katie and I into the machine to watch the OxoCube being born. That's how she described it. <laughs> Right it's now, all true. the the, exec, the 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 CEO of that organisation wanted to know how to deal with how to where her engagement was, and we went back. So you only have to go and speak. To, I can't remember the lovely woman's name. She was lovely, awful? right? And she'd been there forty five years or something. I mean, you know, she'd been there for years, doing exactly the same job, but she knew not only the importance of Oxo cubes. She knew how long many oxocubes were made in a minute on that machine. She understood that if the machine stopped working for a length of time, what impact that had. She didn't just get the business case. She actually really enjoyed being part of 90% of the kitchens in this country. Yep. Right? I also remember on exactly that same tour, and I'm not going to remember whether it was Super Noodles or one of the others, but we went in and these people were really angry with the executive because the advert was putting out was saying that Super Noodles were for lads and were for a bit, you know, were a bit... They had real pride in their noodles and they felt that the advert was 
making them seem cheap. Yes. Right? Now, those two, that was one company. And understanding that is the internal comms role of going back to the executive and saying, okay, you have to know that you need to explain to your super noodle teams, and it may not be super noodles, it may be pot noodles, I can't remember which one it was now, but you have to explain to them why most people who buy the product are going to like that advert. Because at the moment, you're alienating your staff. And you equally well have to sit down with the team in Oxo and say, we love the fact that you get this. And we love the fact, and, and you celebrate those people because champions are few and far between. It's interesting because I remember, I don't know if you remember actually feeding back what we'd found on the ground after acid tests and the work that you're talking about. And the executive team, and particularly the chief executive, I believe was a woman, had quite an emotional reaction to what we were saying because she didn't realise, she genuinely didn't know that she had that passion on the front line. And um, yeah, I remember her, she was, she was quite emotional about it. And we would, what we had done is exactly what you described earlier. We had built a bridge. We had shown her something she didn't know uh, and collapsed the hierarchy so that she could actually see what people were thinking and feeling on the ground. Um, it was powerful. I remember that very well. But I think that collapsing hierarchy, I know, I do understand that you need roles and you need function and you can't all be flat. I get that. And there are different responsibilities. And I paid myself more than others at AB. Not always, <laughs> but I did. And I do get paid more than anybody else in the charity. Interestingly, I've, I was just, I've taken two pay cuts in my life to start new roles. First, when I left newspapers to join AB, I took a massive pay cut that time. And when I left AB to join charities, I took a big pay cut. Um, because it wasn't about money. It was about doing something different that made my heart beat faster. And I think that that, that if you can engage people in that, um, that, that wonderful moment of excitement on a bit, a little, even a tiny success, you don't necessarily have to collapse the hierarchy to be able to celebrate the success. And I think the hierarchies are only useful, are only useful when they serve function. But hierarchies for hierarchy's sake, because you have to have the bigger corner office, <laughs> um, isn't necessarily the right way of doing it. I never forget we went, we did some work with one of the um, I won't name them, but one one of the pharmaceutical companies, and we went from the main office on basically a plastic floor into the executive offices, onto the, the I have never stepped onto a thicker pile carpet in my life. And I have never walked into bigger offices in my life. And down the walls, they were celebrating all the tablets and the creations that the company had created over the years. Not one of them had come out of any of those executive suites. <laughs> no. They had all come from the scientists out on the front line doing the work. And it's the same with the coronavirus. I have to say, pharma, pharma today, if they are genuinely not looking to make serious profits on the vaccine, I appreciate they have to cover their costs and they have to eventually have ongoing profit down the road. But if they are genuinely, genuinely working to deliver the solution to the problem we've got in the world today, my hat goes off to them and they will have completely changed the face of the way the world sees pharma. That will be a very powerful thing. And that'll be a time for internal comms to step in there and say, don't go back to the old ways, guys. We mm. need to readjust this. Because mm. if you go back to the old ways, it, your trust will disappear very quickly. You have to live it for longer than just the moment. I just want to go back to one quick thing you said. I often get asked by people who ring me. Not that long ago, someone rung me and said, I've got two job offers and I don't know which one to take. 
And your point is so well made. So I just want to go back to it. Which one makes your heart beat faster is a great way of deciding. And that's a gut reaction. That's not... There, a- there, you cannot know for sure, particularly on the beginning of a job, um, which one. But if you've got two on the table and one of them, ignore what they're going to pay you. Unless you have to have the money, and I do appreciate some people have to do it for the money, but assuming you can ignore what they're going to pay you or they're the same, it doesn't really matter. The one that makes you smile, the one that makes you want to get up, that's the one to take because anything else will be less satisfying. And if you're not satisfied, you won't do the right job. So before we turn to those quick fire questions, I just want to ask you one of the things we haven't touched on, but it's part of that whole trust and transparency debate is that now every member of a, of a workforce has the power to be a publishing house via Twitter, LinkedIn, Glassdoor, whatever it is, because of the power of the internet and particularly social media. Do you have any reflections on how that might or has changed internal comms from when you were kind of basically owning the means of getting the news out? There was really just one channel. And now, obviously, everyone can have a conversation with everyone else. From my point of view, it makes honesty and integrity that much more important because you can be you can be exposed that much more quickly. Mm. Did you have any particular technique uh, to con- when you're consulting at that senior level with leaders about becoming a little bit more honest over the narrative? Did you was there was there a technique you used? Was there a story you used to tell? Because that's a I think that's a challenge that listeners are going to have quite a lot. Um, you, you have to be a bit creative sometimes. There was one audit I was doing where I was sitting down with the CEO who um, I, I, was trying to, I was trying to explain why he had to explain change in terms of why something has to happen, not just do it. And he was, um, he, he, was he didn't really get it. He just thought that the edict from above was, should be enough. You know, I, I, I'm, I've been employed into this role it was a man in this situation. I, I've been employed in this role. And what I say, based on my executive team's input, should be enough. And I was sitting there, and, and however I tried to frame this, he was like, hmm. So eventually I said to him, just stand on your chair. And he said, what do you mean? I said, just stand on your chair. He said, what are you trying to tell me? I said, I'm not going to tell you. Just do it. Just stand on your chair. And he, and he was getting really cross. So I said, okay. If I explain to you that by standing on your chair, you'll be sl- you'll be concentrating, half concentrating on how to balance, and you might answer this question in a different way, you might be tempted to stand on your chair. But me just telling you to stand on your chair was never going to get you to do it. And he stopped and he looked at me and he went, he called me names. <laughs> um, and I said, I said, it's not, I'm not trying to tell you that you sometimes don't have to give some control and command, command and control. I said, but unless that's supported by why, the first question that we can wind our parents up with is why. Absolutely. And it's the last question we should always keep asking because quite frankly, so I, I, I don't have an answer on to how to convince a senior team to be honest and open and to carry the integrity except asking why they're not. Yes, yes. Um, or getting them to stand on their chairs. <laughs> Thank you, Tim. Right, I am going to turn to those quick fire questions. What do you both wish you had known when you first started out? I wish that I had um, perhaps been tougher with some of the bigger clients. Um, and I don't mean that, I, don't, I, I think we were tough, 
But I think there were times because that balance between, as an agency providing the service, there were times when we produced work that I wasn't 100% happy with, not because we couldn't produce the work, but because the clients didn't demand enough. And I think we could have pushed them further. Yes. Um, that That isn't necessarily an answer because sometimes they, they couldn't afford it and sometimes they didn't want to afford it and sometimes they didn't, just didn't want to do it. And I think we kept striving, but I didn't know that. It took me a little while to understand how far you could push some clients. And I actually think it was only when we started developing the audit process. Yes. When we, when we took – because we were providing all this consultancy and getting the pushback of no – because for them, we were just producers of the magazine. When we actually were paid to be the auditor and to be the consultant, then they listened to us telling them that actually you're doing this wrong. Yes. And if you use them properly, I guess, you'd do it better. Yes, I think it was that moment. It's so much easier to go in with data and evidence and insight than an opinion. I mean, we, we our opinion <coughs> often was actually we were proved right in that, but... It didn't matter because actually we had the data and these were often financially driven people, as you said, or data driven people. And they had that kind of left side of the brain thing going on. So that really helped in those conversations. I think that perhaps I can think of one or two people that I put trust in and were very badly let down. And I think that I should have been more discerning in uh taking them on uh face value because and yeah he still employed me <laughs> <laughs> but you also started this whole podcast talking about setting up ab in the early days yes. and you told a story about two people that stole your clients effectively oh that's for another person yes yeah so resilience is a, a flexibility in resilience <laughs> could say that i'm not i take people at face value until but that's what's so, you know, likeable and lovable. I think if you had this kind of cynical, but I don't, I don't I, I trust don't, you. I, I, mean, a result, I mean, just another example. We did a job and it was about £40,000 uh, for the print bill. And I couldn't pay the print bill. I was advised, oh, don't worry. Don't, you don't bother to pay the bill. Just go bankrupt and we'll start AB again. And I said, that's not the way I do business. That's not the way I do business. And I went to the printer and I arranged had arrangements. And of course, we paid them back. But the, the instruction was financially, oh, don't worry about that. Mm. They're very wealthy. They've got a, they're in big business. They're 40 grand to them, nothing to them. They're, 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 you know, they're, they're, they'll write that off. That's not a problem. It's a bad debt for them. Mm. I said, no, no. But that's not right. That's not right for me. Mm. So, you, you know. It's that, that integrity piece. But again. it is. That honesty and integrity shines through. So here's a question that people find difficult. Oh, go on. <laughs> what would you do tomorrow if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? So we take failure off the table. What would you do tomorrow? Buy a lottery ticket. <laughs> That's an honest answer. <laughs> <laughs> if I knew I couldn't fail, Tim, if, if there was no way it was going to fail, I would buy the lottery we ticket. We have just been saying that money doesn't matter. <laughs> no, but what I do with the money is a different thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. You get let, let off the hook. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, what would you do if you knew for certain you couldn't fail? I would resolve any financial problems that my children might have. Right, yes. 
which is also something we've been talking about a lot in this conversation as well. I think risk-taking is, which is what you're talking about here, it's not about taking a lottery, although there is a risk in any bet. Um, risk-taking is an integral part of running a business. Not, And I don't mean that just as just even just going to work. I mean, I run a charity today that supports families of officers who die on duty. Um, every time a police officer goes out to face members of the public, they take a risk. Some of those risks don't go well, and some of them don't come home. Um, the risk for me is not supporting their families well enough. So I have to take value judgments on how I can develop a charity that gives those people a degree of comfort in something that can never be comforted. Yeah. You know, I cannot do the one thing that will make their lives better. Nobody can. And that is forever a salutary thing. So the risk of failure is immense because I can't ever take the pain away, mm, mm. right? And risk in anything. There's and, no and, solution to that. No, but the number of families that I support whose kids go into the police force is quite astonishing. Wow. So what does that tell you? Well, it says that they understand, they, they, they believe in the person they've lost. Yes. They believe in the risks that they took. And... And Although, the values that that person had. And the values that that person had. And they, you know, and it's really heartwarming. And it's quite, I mean, it's not quite powerful. It's incredibly powerful. You know, I, I, my job does make my heart beat faster every day because of that power. And if I'm ever having a bad day, I know 100% I'm not having as bad a day as the people I help. Yeah. You know, and that, that, that means I'm the luckiest man in the world. It's a very levelling thought. 100%. And... When I was at AB, when I was running AB, I was painfully aware of the livelihoods of the people who yes. who I employed, and it wasn't a it wasn't a a, a, a doff your cap awareness no. to that. It was a deep seated understanding. You know, my house if uh, my house at the time underwrote our debt, and when you say. You know, what was profit the motivator? Well, you often didn't make profit. No. You know, you a often good year was break even. Well, exactly. <laughs> and, and that was something. But you take those risks because you believe yeah. in the power of what you do and in the work that you're giving people and the deliver and the stuff and the amazing stuff. So, you know, I employed people so much better than me. <laughs> I did. I carry on, on that tradition too. <laughs> oh, no, but that, to be honest, if you're a good leader, you do. If you genuinely believe you're the only one who's got the answers, you're never going to succeed. Mm -hmm. We have one final question for you. What, so we give you a kind of billboard, a metaphorical billboard in a way. You can put any message you like on that billboard for millions to see. Any message, any thought, any slogan, any piece of advice. What are you going to put on that billboard? Be true to yourself. I love it. Okay. It's hard for me to break this down into, into one. I'll give you two billboards, Tim. It's okay. fine. Okay. Do what makes your heart beat faster is the first one. And then the second one, which is the more cynical, is if profit is the bottom line, we are screwed. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the Internal Comms podcast. Thank you so much. It's our pleasure. Good. Thank you very much. So that's a wrap for this episode of the Internal Comms Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd be 
extremely grateful if you could rate it on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, because I'm told that's the very best way of making the show more discoverable for other internal comms pros out there. Thank you. The show notes to this episode, including that seminal book by Larkin and Larkin, and a link to Noam Chomsky's Requiem for the American Dream, are on our website, abcom.co.uk forward slash podcasts. And while you're there, you might like to sign up for our monthly newsletter. It's called I Saw This and Thought of You. It's where you'll find updates on the show, plus other newsy nuggets from the world of comms. We have just one more show left in this season, and it's a very special one. We'll be speaking with a group of senior comms professionals in the UK's National Health Service. I'll be asking for their reflections on this year and lessons they would like to share with the wider comms community. So you might want to hit that subscribe button. All that remains is to say thank you. Thank you for choosing the Internal Comms Podcast. And until we meet again, lovely listeners, stay safe and well. And remember, it's what's inside that counts.